more time. Finally got uh, together. Uh, <laughs> thank you very much for tuning in, everyone. I'm Joseph Cordicato. Joining me tonight is JF Gary. Be his first appearance on the new show. JF, how's it going? It's going very well. Glad to hear it. Uh, it, it it's uh, th th there was a bit of a connectivity issue, and then for whatever reason, the show's theme has some difficulty playing. But you know that's part of life. What the hell are you going to do? Anyhow, uh, JF and I are going to discuss something very interesting tonight: uh, welfare statism on the American right. It is something that's popping up in some circles of the U.S. right. And for those who don't know, JF is a libertarian, uh, so his perspective here, I think, will be quite intriguing. Uh, I will just throw out there: I, I myself uh, am a sociopolitical realist. My views are all over the place. But they, as I think everybody knows, pool generally toward the right. And I'm not a big fan of seeing welfare statism on the right. I think that it brings with it many problems, basically, of the left, just under the guise of rightism. Uh, and uh, at the end of the day, a problem is a problem, regardless of which end of the political spectrum it comes from. Uh, so before we get into specifics, JF, uh, are you surprised to see this trend uh, coming about? I'm not surprised. Uh, it's been a very long time that uh, there's been this conflict in the right where we, we actually get, uh, we get packaged together in the right where a single political movement does not belong. And we get packaged that way by the left. It's been a long time that the left has been ascribing labels like far right to people who really are not even right-winger. They're, they're not even beginning to be slight right-wingers. They are, by any standard, statist. They are people who like controlled economy. They just don't, they, they sometimes disagree with uh, the way the left manages the state and they have a theory for an alternative state, but they are still statist. And to me, it's been a confusion that has been entertained to the point where there are people who actually think that they are right-wingers while still believing in a big state, which to me is a contradiction in term. But we've seen it in every aspect of the right, from center-right to the far-right. Uh, people are getting, hey, state power is there, so let's take it and let's use it. And I think it's a great opportunity to remind ourselves of why state power is dangerous even when you think you use it for good. Yeah, in your opinion, what is the central danger of using state power to achieve basically moral ends, people wanting to impose their uh, doctrine of morality on others through the administrative state? Uh, I mean, this can be done in so many different ways, but generally speaking, what do you think the core danger is with that proposition? The core danger is a long-term danger in threatening the state of meritocracy of the market. Uh, the market has its ways of binding human actions, human investment, and allocation of resources from society. 
so that they are directed to what people need, or at least people are making an actual attempt at guessing what people will eventually need. And that is a fundamental uh, health uh, aspect of our corporate world, which directs our nations toward making the right choices because if if you invest in a company that doesn't address the human need, it will eventually fail and you will lose your money. This incentivization is at the root of the success of our nations, and it is also at the root of their failures when we fail to maintain a state of meritocracy and incentives, which is what we see when we develop an entire monopoly of the state in an area such as public education. Just to play devil's advocate momentarily, I'm sure you've heard of Pedro Gonzalez of Chronicles Magazine. Uh, he's on Tucker Carlson a lot, and he is uh, one of the foremost advocates for uh, big right-wing governance. He believes basically that the right should infiltrate the bureaucracy uh, of, of various, you know, government uh, go levels of government, state federal. Uh, obviously, in Canada, the equivalent is uh, provincial and federal. Uh, same thing, really. Uh, but uh, Pedro would say that right-wingers should take over the bureaucracy, uh, twist the uh, machinations of the bureaucracy to meet uh, right-wing ideological ends, and then use big government to impose a moral agenda on the public, uh, similar to how wokeism, a moral agenda, obviously, is being imposed from the left. He would like, uh, basically, uh, the right-wing version of wokeism, if you will, uh, to be imposed upon people, and he believes that people will just go along with whatever the state does, and so he sees it, uh, basically, Basically, uh, big government rightism as a viable alternative to big government now woke leftism. Uh, what do you say to, about his general point of view? Yeah, and we should grant a place for this view. I don't think it's completely ridiculous, but we should understand what it is and what it is not. So it's important to understand that if state power has already taken over a part of the economy, we are in a situation where Every right-winger right would agree that it is being misused by the left, that state power is attacking, for example, the family. And that we should agree on. And there should be ide ideals that we target out of it, but there should also be pragmatic ways to get out of state power, to find a way to reduce it strategically. And at times, that pragmatic, these pragmatic considerations will justify uh, keeping the state power in. But we shouldn't root for state power ever, because we should know, uh, given the history of state power, that it will not be uh, properly taken over by right-wing interests, and that ultimately technocratic social management, leftist kinds of interests will take over. So yeah. the dangers of state power, we should not delude ourselves that temporary control of it will improve things. But where I would grant to Pedro Gonzalez and the likes of him is given that we are stuck in a leftist state power situation, there might be temporary moments at which converting that state power without abolishing it, which the population may not even let us do, it might be better to make a right-wing state power uh, just to redirect these streams of income from the state, like income tax, toward good right-wing ends. But ultimately, we should never forget that the goal should be to wane ourselves of state dependence, because we're going to create other problems in the future, and we're going to pr create structures that inevitably will be taken over by leftist technocratic interests.
I think one big flaw in Pedro's theory is that people on the right are generally not attracted to bureaucratic positions. Some are, but uh, people who are on the left have an inherent like, I would say, for working in a cubicle in a government office where probably not as much is demanded of you as it is in the private sector. You'll never make nearly as much money potentially as you would in the private sector, but uh, the, the floor is higher. And for a lot of people on the left, that justifies them staying in the public sector. Uh, a lot of people on the right are more individualistic, uh, and they are certainly more uh, what might say elaborately goal oriented uh, than a lot of people on the left who would like to work in the bureaucracy are. Uh, so I think that in any case, anywhere, a bureaucracy is always going to have at least a slight left lean. Now, in the US and Canada, it has a totally uh, <laughs> uh, needless uh, far left lean. Uh, it, it's exaggerated, obviously, because there's been ideological capture of various bureaucratic organs. But I think even under the best of circumstances, bureaucracy, which I would say is necessary to an extent, is always going to have at least a center-left influence is just mitigating that influence from uh, abusing the rights of the people who, who the bureaucracy is supposed to serve. I think the idea that there's going to be, uh, you know, uh, this vast pool of right-wingers who want to work in a government office, I think that uh, th that view is basically at odds with human nature with regard to how people on the right think, the goals they set for themselves, and what they want out of life. Absolutely, and this is where the project is bound to fail. Uh, the state of, say, traditionalist social conservatism, as it existed in every of our grandparents' minds a hundred years ago, or their grandparents, uh, it was a simple state that has emerged from being in a particular situation. You cannot reproduce this with the tools of the state. There was the church of the village that was a social hub of coordination of forces and generosity within a cooperative society. There was a small state action to keep order and at time to resolve conflicts between civil parts. But everyone was stuck with the goal of surviving and surviving together and uh, benefiting from uh, the generosity of others when it was needed. This state of affair has emerged from a natural process. Trying to uh, recreate it in an aquarium that is the modern world under control of the state is basically impossible. To reproduce how uh, the desire for survival back then was big enough to justify willful adherence to social norms is not something you're going to inject in a program by some bureaucrat making up a a school program about social conservatism. You're not going to teach social conservatism. You have to live it and you have to have risen in it in a way that helped your survival. And the natural processes that happen in one case, the natural occurrence of it, will develop certain behavioral dispositions in the population, select for them in a way that the bureaucracy cannot do. So the bureaucracy will always be bound to <clears throat> try to insert these memes, these ideas unnaturally into people's brain, and it won't work because you don't have the accompanying natural selection forces that led to these social conservative lifestyle to exist in the first place. Mm -hmm.
Absolutely. Uh, yeah, social conservatism is, as you were mentioning, a lived experience. It's it's hard to put it into a book or a public policy white paper and say, you know, this is what it's going to be. Uh, it's much more organic than that. Now, it, this is an advantage I'm about to say, which the left has. When it comes to various uh, progressive ideas and ideologies, they are synthetic. They were obviously just created one day. And as a result, they can be put into a book or into a white paper uh, as a plan of action for bureaucrats to use in changing society. Uh, and social conservatism uh, is something that's not, it's not like that. It really isn't. It's more like a natural uh, feature of a species. Um, it happens, it shows up. It's more like the squirrel and why it has the ability to gather nuts. And it's just that it helped the squirrels. And social conservatism helped the communities then to exist and survive, to, to face the harshness of nature together. Absolutely. Absolutely correct. And of course, social conservatism means something different from culture to culture. Uh, there, there's, And this is, I guess, the, the, the beauty of looking at social conservatism as a concept. Uh, it's basically just any given people trying to conserve their way of life uh, in a shared uh, social unit in a society. Uh, and uh, that is uh, something which has obviously helped various peoples survive. But uh, in a place like Canada or the U.S., uh, where you have a very uh, cosmopolitan, diverse, multicultural uh, country on either side of the border, uh, trying to have socially conservative public policy administered through uh, the Ministry of Education or the Department of Education, uh, it's, it's, it, that, that, I think that's basically a non-starter. It's, really, uh, it's really replacing something synthetic, uh, leftist, leftist ideology, with something else that's synthetic, a pseudo-conservative ideology. And in any case, you're not getting the genuine article. Absolutely. And the way the bureaucracy interacts with, uh, with the world makes it impossible because the bureaucracy fundamentally interacts with individuals. Mm -hmm. And, you know, an individual shows up at some desk and they need a service from the government. This individual will be treated like any other individual. And there are all sorts of laws, in fact, that bind our government agent to be treating people individually. Whereas in the social conservatism mentality, people had conceptions of a family. Oh, mm -hmm. the, this family is dishonest. This family we can trust because they've been super generous to us. This family is part of the church. This, part, this family is not. Uh, all of this matters uh, because there are limits to the system you can implement as a bureaucratic control of social engineering. There are just things that won't pass. And... Things like right-wing ideas emerged from an intergenerational concern of stability. You're not going to take someone who comes from another culture and convince them that the entirety of the last hundred years of Quebec cinema, he must carry them forward and he must love them and love the artist. And it just won't come to him naturally. And this is not even a critique of a migrant who would would not adhere to his local society. It's just not, his memories of childhood would be different from mine. And we are bound with the problem that given that the bureaucracy interacts with us in an individual manner, it becomes incapable of transmitting things that can only transmit across intergenerational times.
You know, the, the situation of French Canada, Quebec, is interesting because I've researched it tremendously, and there is something immensely impressive in the early 20th century, the Golden Square Mile in Montreal. At that time, Toronto was second fiddle to Montreal as the business center of Canada, uh, and Montreal had the same level of wealth that you would have found in the Gilded Age in New York City or Chicago. And uh, the thing that was, it was totally dominated by Anglo-Canadian interests and the Franco-Canadians were, uh, they weren't second-class citizens under the law, but but socially they, they had next to no control over, uh, you know, the, the economic and therefore political power of Montreal, the biggest uh, city in Quebec. Uh, so it created this really uh, tense situation, which then uh, metastasized until basically the 1970s when uh, there was a, a massive uh, Quebecois movement against the Golden Square Mile and a lot of these uh, Anglo-Canadian interests that had been in Montreal for generations by that time ran to Toronto, and that's how Toronto became what it is now. Uh, and, you know, this massive economic powerhouse, bar none in Canada, even surpasses Vancouver. So it's, it's, it's fascinating. This was really... Uh, you could say it was a clash of economics because economics had a lot to do with the tensions, but it was a clash of culture where people uh, were, they had different traditions, they had different ideas of what life should be as a result of these traditions, and they did not view each other on an individual basis, they viewed each other collectively. I wish they could have got along. I wish that the Anglo-Canadians would have viewed the Franco-Canadians more individualistically going back to the early 1900s and integrated them into the Golden Square Mile, and then there would have not been as much conflict. But unfortunately, uh, what happened did happen. And it's because these two groups had very different ideas as to what should be conserved in society. And it, it caused, uh, you know, a, a, a situation where basically the economy of Montreal tanked. It did come back uh, a bit in the 80s and 90s and 2000s, but uh, it was on literally on top of the world <laughs> uh, during the age of the Golden Square Mile. Uh, so that was a case of, of multiculturalism. Uh, resulting in uh, economic catastrophe. Uh, and JFA, obviously you know about this better than I do. You are a Franco-Canadian. That goes without saying. Uh, anything to say about the example I've brought up? No, I think it's a beautiful description. Uh, the tensions still exist, but there was some amount of exodus of the Anglophones of Montreal. Uh, they still exist, though not everyone has left. Uh, I believe that part of this exodus uh, affected Steven Pinker. He often tells the story of fleeing Montreal, basically, as an Anglo-Canadian. Uh, so it's interesting, and it keeps going forever, because societies with different sets of interests, of course, you had a strong nationalistic feeling in the Quebecois people back then, uh, still today, but doesn't show up that much as a separatist desire, shows up more as a kind of uh, economical nationalist or civic nationalist concern with our position among Canada. Uh, but yeah, it, it creates tensions and it creates uh, irreconcilable views of management of society that are always bumping onto each other. That leads to extreme lack of productivity in the political process, basically. The last 40 years of uh, Quebec politics is just bumping on one another, just, just trying to grab a little more power from the federal government, just trying to grab a little more power to, on immigration, just trying to flood a little more Quebec with migrants that would eventually think different than current Quebecois. It's a constant war, and it, a, a society to be productive should be 
agreed and consented upon by the vast, vast majority. And we should all agree, okay, we need someone to collect the trash. We need someone to do this. That could be a good government. But uh, the, the kind of government that you engage in when you have different segments of your population that have fundamentally at odds uh, interests becomes absolutely unproductive. And the only big winner is the technocracy, which which ends up having support from every side precisely because of people like Pedro Gonzalez. Yeah, it really is, uh, to say the least, a fascinating situation. Uh, and you know, Canada and the U.S., it, it's kind of interesting because there a lot of Canadians say, no, we're not like the Americans, and a lot of Americans say, no, we're not like the Canadians. I am uh, an American, but from Florida, which is so far south on the eastern seaboard in some cases it's more like the caribbean than it is anywhere else in the u.s uh but when i see people from upstate new york and southern toronto you can't and i see them in florida all the time there are loads of them here uh you can't tell them apart they're so similar to each other that uh it's 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 fascinating as a matter of fact the anglo uh, Canadian from uh, from the Niagara region is more similar to uh, a, a, a an upstate New Yorker of the same ethnic background than this Anglo-Canadian is to a Quebecois, vastly more similar. As a matter of fact, the Quebecois is more common with an Acadian from Louisiana. Uh, it, it, it's, so the, the fact of the matter is that when you look at societies, it's not really about national borders or state or provincial borders or even county borders. It, it's about uh, people creating a certain state of affairs and trying to conserve that over the generations to perpetuate their peoplehood. And something like that, you just can't administer through public policy. Like I said, it's very organic. Absolutely. And yes, when you drive from Canada to the U.S., like I have did often, there's no major difference. You really feel a continuity. Uh, you, have to, you have to go in special communities in both places to see the contrast. But Generally, you see the same kind of commercial line, co commercial roads with all of the same companies. Sometimes the company name will change, but it will fundamentally look the same. Uh, Canada and the U.S. are very similar in their in their their kind of base foundation, which is the English people. Of course, Canada has the addition of a French contingent, uh, but that's pretty much it. Now, Canada is more advanced into this exploration mm -hmm. of what happens when the state grows and a, a culture of welfare develops? And eventually that culture of welfare is subject to an exchange, to, to the balls being exchanged between the camp of the left and of the right. So, for example, in Canada, uh, it is a very regular thing to have this child support from the uh, child checks from the government. Uh, they, if you just make a child and you're not super rich, you will get some support from the government. They will constantly give you checks until the child makes it to 18 years old. That you are starting to get in the US, but it has been a long time that it's available in Quebec, perhaps since the 70s at least. And, and it's been developed into basically a system of welfare for parents. Now, when I look at something like this, uh, with respect to our question of should the right take the reins of the state, I love that given that this money has been already stolen from the people by the government, we might as well send it to a good cause. You know? <laughs> and so when the state, instead of fighting against the family, actually adopts a, a position in line with nature, in line with the interest of the family, and in line with the, the reproductibility of heterosexual couples, 
here's one thing that should piss off the leftist, the anti-natalist, the social engineer, even the environmentalist to a certain extent, because the state has just entered a feedback loop with the people. You can make money, you can make a living basically pumping out babies. That's a beautiful thing for a right-winger and a traditionalist. And it turns out that it's a recruitment of a, a use of the tool of the state uh, that the leftists have, have been established, not for those purposes, but for other purposes. So there is a, a silver lining in all of it, which is that in the end, the leftists even lose at controlling their own monster, the state. I, I think that the people on the left who want to pay, by the way, this, as you know, no, I know you know, we had this in the U.S. briefly with COVID. There was basically UBI for uh, for anyone who had kids, and then uh, Congress didn't renew it, and it went away, thank heavens. It did certainly contribute to the inflationary environment we're in, but it contributed among many, many other things. Uh, the thing of it is, the, the way it works is that, the government does pay uh, in certain cases uh, for people to support their children, uh, not to the extent in Canada, not even to the extent of the UBI that we had here, but it still pays, uh, depending upon the state, a certain amount. And people become addicted to receiving state money from birth. They come to expect it. And so people then get it in their minds that they'll vote for the party, which is most likely to give them more benefits. And obviously, that's going to be only one party. Uh, and it creates a very loyal voting block for the party. So this would seem to be something that's very traditional, encouraging people to have kids, many of them, and spend time with them since they wouldn't have to work or not work as much because they're getting public subsidies. But uh, the reality is that it takes control of them, the prospect of getting this money. And uh, <laughs> politicians have figured out that people will support uh, their party come hell or high water simply because there is the promise of receiving more funds, even if these you know increased funds never see the light of day. So it winds up being this thing that on the surface would look to benefit social conservatism, but in reality, it winds up benefiting the, <laughs> the administrative state that is uh, the stalwart enemy, if anything, even vaguely socially conservative. It's a really uh, interesting twist of affairs. Absolutely. I agree with everything you've just said, which is why we should only use these things pragmatically. We should say, all right, this money for now is better on helping family, uh, you know, stimulating family building than it would be, say, pushing for LGBT flags in Pakistan in an internship activity with some local uh, outpost of the military of the U.S., something like this. So we have to have our ordered uh, preferences. The Pakistan project with LGBT flag should be low on our priority. The helping families, that, that's okay. But the best ideal to reach is the point at which your society is stable enough that the, the people who generate babies in it are solely rewarded, basically, evolutionarily for being good. And they have made these babies with their resources that they have acquired on the free market. That's where the Pedro Gonzalez job uh, uh, play is very dangerous, basically. Because when you get tempted to create non-meritocratic system, you create what you just described, the uh, basically electoral farms, and mm -hmm. you lose control of the political process. We have it electoral farms affecting uh, that, that are linked to immigration. We have electoral farms that, in the sense of, here's a policy that will help 
generate more migration here and more migration there. Let, let's try to get these people who would vote left. Let's let's try to get them in Texas to to switch Texas. You know, all all of these practices that politicians use, uh, including gerrymandering, to basically uh, take a phenomenon that is already happening naturally or that is helped by the state and recruit it to their political advantage. We absolutely don't want this to develop at an intergenerational level. And unfortunately, any help you will give to the family ultimately is going to result in this one way or another. Mm -hmm. it, it, it's fascinating, but that is the situation. Now, let's get to some specifics about how uh, people on the right are trying to, using economic leftism, engineer the economy for purportedly social benefit, whatever, uh, from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. This was published uh, a few days ago, I believe, uh, and it is uh, late January. Uh, Governor Kemp pushes bill to grant welfare during pregnancy. I'll read a bit from the article. Low-income pregnant women could soon qualify for welfare, according to a bill filed Monday on behalf of Governor Brian Kemp, skipping down a bit under the proposal, skipping even more, low-income women could apply to the Temporary Assistance for Needy Families program while pregnant, skipping down even more. The bill, uh, it's, it's a bit of a grammatical slip here, I'll say the, this bill would make it so pregnant women who don't yet have children qualify for the benefit. Uh, this is interesting because Georgia traditionally is a rather stingy state when it comes to welfare benefits. It is a state that's run by the GOP, even though demographically it absolutely is shifting toward the left. Uh, Atlanta is like a hybrid of uh, Atlanta, by the, but I need to be very clear about this. Atlanta is the largest city in Georgia. Uh, about 60% of the state's population lives in Atlanta or its suburbs. And Atlanta is a hybrid of LA, Baltimore, and Toronto. Uh, and so you can imagine what that means politically speaking, but the Republicans still managed to run the state, but it's getting very, very dicey. Uh, the Democrats hold both U.S. Senate seats, and it won't be long until they take over uh, the state legislature and, of course, the governorship and anything else that's a statewide elected office. So uh, anyway, uh, talking about <laughs> what Kemp is doing, his state is going left because of, as I mentioned, demographics and encouraging low-income pregnant women to, to get on welfare is not going to outdo the Democrats because when a Republican does this, I've seen stuff like this happen. The Democrats say, we'll do it twice as much, even if it's impossible because of budgetary concerns, they'll still dangle the promise and people will wind up voting for them. And so the, what the Republicans have done is aggravate a lot of their base, which doesn't want to have to pay the inevitably higher taxes to support these new measures, uh, while at the same time not getting much support from the left. Now, what Kemp is doing here is trying to advance a quote-unquote pro-life argument uh, that, uh, you know, because abortion is very limited now in Georgia, there's going to be more people born into poverty. And so why not put them on welfare? A lot of quote unquote pro-lifers, we'll get into this in a few minutes, are, are, are going down this road. And Kemp is just an example uh, of this trend. But I think it's not, it's very bad for Georgia because it's going to incentivize more, you know, leftism there in a comprehensive sense. <clears throat> and it's not going to help the state uh, become any less democratic leaning. Uh, it, it's really almost like, uh, as a matter of fact, these uh, Republicans in the name of anti-abortion politics are trying to make the state more democratic. Uh, but uh, even beyond anything to do with abortion, uh, it's just not good public policy on a rational premise. Uh, Jay, if anything to say about what I've read or my opinion on it. 
Well, a lot. Uh, first, I've always said that this pro-life thing of wanting to save all babies is a massive overshoot, <clears throat> a massive misfire of a normal reaction to want to save your babies. Mm -hmm. But you shouldn't be around trying to save everyone's baby mm -hmm. because <laughs> if, you, if you just spill that desire of help a little bit outside of your genetic network, you are already working against your own evolutionary interests. So Without question. I, all these people yelling at the abortion centers and trying to stop every single abortion. Holy shit, are they creating damage for our society? If we could just stop them, if we could just <laughs> shut them up for a moment, <laughs> so many abortions could be saved. <laughs> Now, <laughs> now uh, on the idea of uh, basically paying uh, paying pregnant women by the state, so basically pregnant woman becomes a job. We have to ask ourselves, what did we break of nature when we do this? Uh, because it's basically the system in Canada, although you'll need a, doc a doctor's uh, paper, but basically the doctor will say, oh yeah, your job is too demanding for pregnancy. Here, I'm going to write it for you. Uh, so what did we break here? Well, we broke so much. We broke the natural incentive of women to be looking for the best male. Because now any sperm giver will do. Uh, because she has the safety net of the, of the state. So now what do we end up with? Well, we end up having less sexual selection on the quality of males in the dating sector that precedes the birth sector. So we end up with a less with less genetic quality already one generation down down the way, uh, down the future. Uh, so that is an extremely bad system where you are paying. If if, if those females were getting a, a guarantee from their husband and they would have been incentivized therefore at picking the right husband because a husband who can't pay would deliver more to them than a husband who can't pay. That would have been good. But when the state gives equal protection to all poor choices, you end up with poor results. And we're going to end up with generations of dependent people created by a policy simply because there is no more. What is the criteria in this world that Kemp creates and that we are creating everywhere across America and Canada? What is, what is the criteria of sexual selection for females? Basically, just a guy that that can look at them twerking and say, hey, nice ass. That's it. It's the criteria now. It's, and if he can be somehow have some social status, okay, uh, it might favor his chances. But basically, any dumb sperm giver is the model of the future father. Now, what do you think that means for society? It, it means something to be blunt, dysgenic. Uh, that, that, that's what it means. <laughs> it's, 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 that's exactly what it is. Yes, absolutely. Mm -hmm. it, it's, you know, at the end of the day, people on the right, this is a big problem. Not so much in Canada, although Canada it's more than fearing offending people. But in the U.S., it's people actually believe crazy things. Uh, but on the right, there is a lot of avoidance of talking about the realities of biology. Uh, I, there was a, a, this Matt Walsh film that came out last year 
uh, about what is a woman. And, and he really does some outstanding research. But at the end, he sort of like makes a joke. And he doesn't want to actually talk about uh, at the biological level, what is it that separates men and women? And, you know, you wonder why the hell that is, because you go through this movie and yet you don't bring up this question and give it a, a reasonable answer with someone like yourself to explain. Uh, but it's obvious that Walsh chose to, 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 to wimp out because there are a lot of conservatives, particularly in America, who have a bizarre view of humanity, which basically says there's no such thing as evolution, even though you can literally see evolution and progress. Uh, uh, and and uh, they don't want to talk about what really differentiates men and women. And it's not political. Like I said, it has to do with science. But uh, when when one talks about, say, uh, dysgenic uh, reproduction, uh, it, it, it's the same thing. People don't want to address the ramifications of that political, economic, social. Uh, on the right, they just want to say, no, 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 no. Somehow if we kiss the situation up to God, everything will be just fine. But uh, you, you, there is this absolute uh, fear, reluctance, if not disdain of science among many on the American right and in Canada. They're just too scared to talk about it, the conservatives. Uh, but uh, uh, they're, they're, they're smarter. They just they, they just are they're smart enough to know that they would be socially ostracized. But in, in America, it, it, the situation is much worse because there are a lot of people who actively believe nonsense. And the right has to deal with this at some point. It does have to come to terms. If it wants to create a truly organic, uh, tradition-oriented society, healthily tradition-oriented, by the way, I'm not talking about crazy stuff, uh, it does have to deal with biology, which is at the root of everything. And uh, the Matt Walsh wimp out for an otherwise in an otherwise great film is an example of how the the right just kicks the the football into the long grass and tries to forget about it. Meanwhile, the game goes on and the left keeps winning. Absolutely beautiful description of what's <laughs> happening. The rights program lives in an abstraction, a kind of uh, traditional conception of a civil idea of the constitution and glory to God and religion, and that's pretty much it. Now, glory to God works as a call to unity in an already Christian nation with an already Christian village in which you're yelling this and you're already built church where everyone is going anyway. Uh, but it doesn't work when it's, uh, when it's subjected to hostile attacks. It's like, it's like the Christians of America have never understood that the entirety of society is under a charge. It's being attacked by the technocrats and they are taking chips at it. They've been taking chips at it since uh, 40 years now. It's uh, 50 years at this point. It's time to wake up and to understand that if you're going to engage in this war, if you're going to protect anything, you're going to have to interface with the factual reality. And, and it's something so uh, important that you let go, that, that you concede to the left when you give up thinking of evolution, thinking that it matters, thinking that genes matter. Uh, it's way too much. Ask yourself who the taboos are serving and you'll realize that you don't have to subscribe to these taboos because the taboos of genetics and the reality that all societies are eugenic is something that this being a taboo benefits the left. And the right seems to misunderstand that they can somehow fit socially if they forget to talk about it or if they don't even think about it at all, when in fact it is the only way you undermine the leftist attack on society. Mm -hmm.
it is really sad because the answers are there when it comes to uh, how uh, society can be cultivated in a productive way. The answers are in science, ultimately, not in, you know, uh, somebody's fables. Uh, but uh, in America, there's such an aversion to that. There's such a fear of it uh, and the willful ignorance in other cases. It makes meaningful progress very hard. Uh, so instead, people say, you know, we have to, quote unquote, save the babies, the six week old embryos of people who, uh, to say the least, don't have a very friendly opinion of us. Uh, and we have to do this, that, the other thing. Uh, and somehow this is going to make everything better. And I often ask people of this mindset, well, you know, what do you think the ultimate consequences are going to be? And they really don't have any firm answer. They just believe they're right morally. They don't care if it literally makes the country into uh, a failed state. Uh, and for them, it's being uh, right. Uh, and they somehow believe some, a lot of them that they'll be rewarded in the quote unquote next life for this. Uh, so it, it, it's fascinating. There's uh, definitely an element of self-destruction here, of, uh, of self-absorption, uh, and uh, of willful delusion. Uh, and dealing with that is, is profoundly difficult uh, because the people who engage in this do so because on an emotional level, they're pleased by what they're doing. But in the long run, uh, they're going to feel the pain. Uh, and certainly if they have children and grandchildren, their descendants will feel the pain of living in a dysfunctional so-called society. Yeah, if you subscribe to this little fight of my preferences are better than yours because they come from God or my preferences are better than yours because they lead to a society like this, you're still in the leftist framing of individualism and you're still lacking perspective on, of understanding yourself as part of a chain of being and a chain of being at war with other chains of being. Uh, and I think it's uh, the right add a lot of obsession with individualism because the individual turns out to be the unit of decision-making in economics. Uh, like even if a father has a family and has concerns for his family, ultimately he's going to be the one uh, giving the debit card and paying for this, paying for that. He's an individual decision-maker. And everything has been reduced to this kind of consumerist, individualist view, uh, when the right would totally benefit from if it wants to truly offer an alternative to the left, it would have to see itself as we are parts of chains of being, of lines of descent, and it matters, and it matters what happens in four generations from now. That, that would be things that wouldn't be so of base to say a hundred years ago. My grandfather had concerns for the, the follow-up of the world. We, we even have a movie in Quebec called Pour la suite du monde, for the follow-up of the world, you know, for, for what's to come. And uh, that, that's people were thinking across many generations. But when you get into debating on the internet these days, political ideologies, basically I'm one of the only ones who has a systematic intergenerational concern. Mm -hmm. Most people are embedded in, oh, well, A is better than B because harm, because this, because this political preference. It's all extremely zoomed instead of looking at the stability of the whole system of society. 
You know, it's interesting uh, in, in my case because I can't have children, never wanted any, and I am the first generation on my father's side to be born in uh, in the U.S. proper. He was born in a U.S. Commonwealth, which became part of, uh, uh, be, be, got under Uncle Sam's purview, not terribly, terribly, terribly long before he was born. Uh, so uh, I have a, a unique point of view, I guess, on, on America and on uh, intergenerational matters such as what you've described, mm -hmm. and I, I sort of look at it as a quasi outsider but not totally uh and i think it gives me a clear mindedness that helps to understand what's going on and i see the saddest thing i see uh and this is really it can be heartbreaking if you dwell too much on it are people whose ancestors have been uh, where i was born for uh going back to the 1800s when it was settled principally almost totally by people from britain and they don't really care about uh, literally the houses that their ancestors built and they're still standing a uh, hundred and uh 140 years later uh it's 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 really uh it's really sad and that's because they obviously have lost any vision of themselves as part of a chain uh and I, I can see it as someone who like i said is a quasi outsider and it really amazes me that these people built all this at a time when technology was so primitive and then their descendants are still around and they could care less it's 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 really sad it is and uh you know it's it's but it's one of those things it's happening far beyond florida it's taking place all across the western world and it does have an impact on a great many matters including economics i it causes people to be i think very short uh have a very narrow fields of vision which often results in bad uh financial decision making uh not looking at the long run uh and it's 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 uh it's it's really something else to me that this happens but you know uh it is absolutely part of life i think that one interesting thing that we saw in, in the early us is that you had this uh very large geographically speaking but sparsely populated uh country made out of these 13 former british colonies and uh it's it and florida i'll just say was not one of them florida remained loyal to the crown i'm very glad that it did but uh in the old us you had these 13 colonies where they were principally settled by anglo-saxons and scots irish and these two groups even though they're both british they really didn't care for each other that much but then there were uh smaller groups of germans dutch and jews and the culture was basically decided upon by the powers that be was going to be wasp and people were going to have their individual rights and liberties under the context of enlightenment era anglo-saxon protestant uh values and that was going to be it everybody assimilates uh or they don't like it and a lot of scots irish in particular did not like it they didn't like it at all they lived very remotely in the appalachian mountains and they were uh very uh resentful of the english people but uh at the same time everybody did generally get along even though they're a member of different tribes even though they had very different uh you know ancestries and cultural backgrounds they got along because they assimilated they would keep some aspect i i've seen this firsthand uh, of who their ancestors were but they had to become de facto wasps uh in order to get along in society and it, it works and so you had these out groups who became uh you wouldn't necessarily say part of the in group but very very well affiliated with it so everybody just chilled out and despite their differences uh they they, they got along well uh and that's produced a situation where economically America was able to rise to the top. It took a while, 
But uh, America had this great leap forward, financially speaking, because it had this internal harmony merged with a vast amount of natural resources, so much land to be developed, very few regulations. People were able to do what they wanted to do. And they were able to build a society to, uh, based upon basically waspdom, uh, where different people assimilated to it and they got along because everyone was trying to build something better, make money, and trade, commerce were used as... as uh, Basically, how do I put this? Uh, ways for different types of people to get along with each other. You can really see by looking at old American history how folks who you know had ancestors who hated each other, like Germans going against English, obviously. Uh, and, and but at the same time, in Pennsylvania, where I spent my middle school years, they came to uh, appreciate each other, even though the Germans still had their German culture. You can see the German architecture there today, and the English had their culture. You literally go one town, it looks German; another town, it looks English. Uh, and but they got along and you can see the harmony between a or an organic form of social conservatism uh a truly uh pro-free enterprise situation and uh, a lack of overpopulation and it created this state of affairs where people were just able to to do their own thing and get along well unfortunately we live in a profoundly different time now the country has changed uh, in ways that i cannot describe but uh suffice it to say that there are great lessons to be learned from the past Absolutely. And what you were saying earlier about the love of the home, uh, I pity anyone who can't feel this. When I was young, we were attached to our houses. We're still attached to the houses we were brought in. I remember I, I was spending a lot of time at my cousin's house and his mom moved from her house to the basically the next house and we were crying we, wow. we were losing a home it, mm -hmm. it was something very big for us this this location that was safe that we we had, always had enjoyed we had gone through so many uh events and, and learning experiences and, and it was taken from us even if he wasn't moving far at all mm -hmm. Yeah, it, it's it's amazing. The concept of home is something that in today's uh, U.S. and Canada, it, 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 it's very much de-emphasized. It's very transient. Uh, both countries, people move from one state to another, one province to another, and they develop a lack of attachment to wherever they are. As a result of that, uh, they become basically people from nowhere. And I, I sort of look at these these this beautiful it's Victorian architecture generally. Like I said, it's built by people of uh, British background. And I look at these houses and I look think of the people who build them. I try to learn about them, and I have such reverence for them, even though they're not, in a manner of speaking, my people. Uh, I, I was still born in this place that they settled uh, or came to as it was being settled. And, and I just find it fascinating. And yet I, I'm also uh, perplexed that there's such a lack of interest in what came before and what you can see the positive consequences of. Uh, it, it's really uh, fascinating. It's, it's very sad. Uh, but, uh, you know, that is the way it is. And if, if people want to look at why society is so uh, in such a terrible state nowadays, it is because people, in many cases, forgot where they came from. And to an extent, when they came, even in the 1800s, early 1900s, when they came to the U.S. and Canada, they did have to minimize the, who, who they were ancestrally in order to get along, like I said, with assimilation. But it was a healthy form of assimilation. Now, 
what we have in, in the U.S. and Canada is no common national culture, not even a shared language, obviously nothing at all in the way of a binding national identity. So we have many different competing tribes, uh, parallel societies, and that creates no shortage of political problems on either side of the border. And these political problems, of course, beget economic problems, all of which are very much avoidable. <clears throat> Absolutely. And the solution I see for it for now, for perhaps many generations, will be to defocus the national identity and understand yourself as perhaps not even an American, perhaps not even a Floridian, but perhaps just a member of your small community that you will have found people who are like-minded to you and you will be able to have a family and a line of descent and eventually uh, will sort out uh, what is Canada, what is the U.S., or, or it will break out on its own. And now getting to this, this the second article, it's called Post-Roe Principles, a new joint statement calls on elected officials to drive down the demand for abortion. It's written by Jonathan Van Maren, who is a Canadian, actually, but he uh, he obviously has an audience in the U.S. It was published on January 31st. Uh, I'll just read a bit of it. With the U.S. Supreme Court's Dobbs decision on June the 24th, 2022, the longer-awaited post-Roe era has arrived after decades of struggle and hundreds of pro-life laws passed. Pro-life legislators finally have the opportunity to not only restrict and, where possible, criminalize abortion, but to respond with policies oriented toward driving down the demand for abortion as well. So what exactly are these policies? Well, uh, uh, in the article, it is said, and in case I had mentioned, I am skipping down, uh, hundreds of pro-life leaders, activists, academics, and journalists have signed on to an unprecedented joint statement authored by Eric Scheidler of the Pro-Life Action League, Charlie Camazee of Creighton University. For those who don't know, that's a Catholic University in Omaha, Nebraska, uh, Jonathan, Josh Brom of the Equal Rights Institute, and myself, titled Building a Post-Road Future and signed by leaders such as Lila Rose of Live Action, Kristen Hawkins of Students of Life of America, Students for Life of America, Erica Bacciocci of the Ethics and Public Policy Center, Monica Miller of Citizens for a Pro-Life Society, and hundreds of others. The statement advocates policies designed to attack the demand for abortion. Now, uh, what exactly does this entail? Well, he quotes the the, the policy in, in the article. Uh, I'll just read a, a, some of what he quoted. Accessible and affordable health care for parents and children, including expanding Medicaid funding for prenatal care, delivery, and postpartum expenses to reduce the financial barriers to welcoming a new child. Expanded child tax credits that promote family formation and lift children out of poverty. I'll just say here briefly, this is the UBI I was mentioning. They were child tax credits that were uh, ridiculously allocated so that they were a form of guaranteed income for as long as the tax credits lasted. It was because of COVID, and thankfully they sunsetted. Uh, if that's even a word, sunset. Sunset. Uh, getting back to, to the to, to the proposal. Paid parental leave that ensures every infant can receive the close attention and nurturing care they need from their mothers and fathers in the early months of life. Flexible work hours to enable families to establish a tranquil home life with predictable work schedules and better options for meaningful part-time employment. Affordable child care options that support working parents without disincentivizing the choice to raise young children at home home that many families say they would prefer fully enforce existing prenatal child support laws while seeking effective new ways to demand that all men take responsibility for the children they father. Anytime I read something like this, now I'm talking, obviously, I know it's anti-male. Uh, 
I, I that that that's it's a dead giveaway. I, that that is some way they're looking for way for new and creative ways to screw men over through divorce courts uh, and uh, probably child protective services and all this stuff. Uh, <laughs> it, it's it's they're basically telling you as a man, we're coming for you. Get ready. Uh, and it's it, the idea that quote unquote conservatism would prioritize any of this to me is insane because affordable health care basically means the people who have difficulty in many cases paying for their health care now are going to be taxed more uh, to pay for people who want to have kids and then the state supports the kids. Expanded child tax credits, that's another name for UBI, which is an inflationary nightmare, also disincentivizes people making more of their lives, innovation. Paid parental leave is just the state telling uh, the mother, uh, you know, you don't have to work anymore. You don't need to focus on a career. You don't need to focus on having a husband or a boyfriend. The state will be your sugar daddy. Flexible work hours sounds like like a way, flexible work hours are fine. I love them. They're great. But when it's state mandated, it sounds like a way for the state to further regulate the economy in a host of destructive ways. Affordable child care means that people are going to send their kids to government-run daycare centers where these kids are going to be indoctrinated from before the time they could speak. And of course, I, the, the, the child support stuff, that's just basically raising the black flag against men. Uh, yeah. <laughs> JF, what do you have to say about the so-called conservative agenda? Beautiful description. Uh, I think it's one one of the most spectacular monologue on this issue I've ever heard. Uh, congratulations. That Thank was per pleasure to hear. Uh, yeah, you're totally right. Um, this is the result of exactly the problem I was raising at the beginning, which mm -hmm. is you're trying to say, you can see it throughout all these policies that you're trying to save the life of someone else. This is not a right-wing belief. The fact is that the pro-life being in bed with right-wing Republican thought in America is that there's no natural reason for it. There's no natural reason other than the fact that it turned out that the pro-life were religious and religion had a better fit within the Republican Party. It's a more complicated relationship than... Uh, saying that it belongs there. It doesn't belong there. Pro-life could have turned out to be a leftist idea in America. Mm -hmm. And here you have the problem that this is all of the responses that basically wealthy, religious, Christian, white woman would say to a young black couple going to get an abortion. How can mm -hmm. we make it easier for you? Mm -hmm. Can we take care of the kids? Hey, I'll go see. I'll go see the kid every week. I'll be. I'll be his grandmother. <laughs> this. This is what's happening. This is what's happening. And there are documentaries of them literally saying these yeah, things. Please. I'm not inventing this. I know. This I know. is. This is from a documentary where that's basically what the pro-lifers are doing. They. Mm -hmm. They. They offer families to become their friend, become their grandparents, if they can just keep the baby. Now, you have, you have delegated your energy investment that was meant to care for your own babies. It was meant to make you a good grandmother to your own grandchildren. And you're just exporting that energy to, a, to a, a, an evolutionary force that is not yours. And so what you have ultimately is you have supposed right-winger who are not truly right-wingers but they pro, they're pro-lifers so therefore they ended up with the right-wingers mm -hmm, exactly. ending up putting together the social engineering state of leftism and, and they're just doing it as hard as the leftists would but they're doing it on a team that has wrongfully been classified as right-wing 
Absolutely. And, and, you know, there's so much horrendous stuff here that I'd expect to hear from, you know, a, a, a woke democratic welfare status. But the scariest thing is, is this child support thing. And I say this as a man, you know, has no kids, never will. But for my fellow men, I realize that discrimination against them is somehow going to wind up being discrimination against me. It never stops with the people who it uh, who are initially targeted. And uh, the idea that there's going to be this push for prenatal child support laws uh, and that men are obviously going to be singled out for this uh, under the guise of taking responsibility. Uh, at that point, the, the administrative state is basically putting a target on men's backs and saying you're the piggy you're the piggy bank and you're going to disperse the coins whenever we want or else and or else means you know uh, the state's going to send these guys to jail uh that, that that that's what it boils down to it's not like getting an, uh, a ticket for an ordinance violation or something like that uh so it's 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 frightening actually this is quote unquote pro-life uh this i, I think there was something I saw in the quote-unquote pro-life movement over the last year or two where there is the demonization of men. And I think you were away from Twitter uh, on, uh, through no uh, involuntarily. But I can't away. imagine. I, I can't imagine while I was gone the demonization of men. <laughs> oh, you have uh it's it's uh it was intense and, and it was coming from the pro-lifers after roe got axed and they said now men are going to take responsibility men are going to do x y and z men are going to start acting like men and the moral of their story was that men are going to man up and marry the slut that was the that that that's the narrative that they're pushing and this is not pro-male this is uh totally anti uh personal dignity period irrespective of biological sex and th that this passes for rightism is frightening because obviously it's, it's a form of uh sex-based governmental discrimination that's being somehow promoted as a right-wing value uh and uh, i mean let's get real men men at this point are so uh, uh so uh, disregarded to be kind by uh society that having this uh in addition to all the other indignities under the guise of conservatism, it, it, it's scary and, it, and it's frightening how many people support it. And I noticed that a lot of the guys who go along with it are religious men, uh, Christian men to be precise, uh, but it's mainly driven by women who who, who I think are they acting much like third wave feminists, except they have uh, the cross dangling from their necks and a Republican elephant pin on their lapel. But it's really the same thing. And it's it, it, it further stigmatizes men who are necessary, obviously, to create the next generation. It makes it much less, much less likely then that they'll be interested in having romantic relationships at all if the state is going to be this much of an activist in screwing them over. It already is, but this would make it worse. So it's, it's really scary under the guise of being quote-unquote pro-life. What we see here are policies being advanced that not only would uh, do immense economic damage that goes without saying but i think it would do immense psychological damage to men as well and result in further uh further negative relations between men and women there is a, a fascinating aspect of push-pull psychology in the behavior of female leftists where they're like oh no we're gonna make you responsible for the children <laughs> we're gonna get child custody child support from you and, and it's fascinating because deeply they don't want the father to be involved. They, they don't like it. The, their, their true drive is to push away the father, the, these leftists, these anti-family leftists. So they are not interested at getting the father involved. They're just interested at getting the cash out of the father. That is mm -hmm. the only point of interest mm -hmm. for them. And mm -hmm. unfortunately, the policies are letting them do it. Now, fortunately, uh, this pull 
push-pull psychology doesn't work and there are ways to avoid it. I was talking many shows ago with you, uh, perhaps even one of our first shows, on the mentality of rent, the mentality mm -hmm. of having no fuck to give, having nothing mm -hmm. to lose. And unfortunately, all these, these, uh, these liabilities stemming from family courts and their, their crazy policies, it leads men to not even have the interest to work. I mean, yeah. if you have one or two exes with one or two babies each, you're done for life. Uh, no matter if, if you're going to work, they're going to take the money. If you don't work, they're not going to be able to. And so at some point, you end up being totally de-incentivized to work. You accumulate Bitcoin and you, you just hope that, uh, that the next generation will be able to get those Bitcoins through some indirect means. But we're creating a world where I wonder who will be building your cities, lady. That's a very good question. That's an extremely good question. And I think it's a question that a lot of people don't ask themselves for obvious reasons. You know, I look at uh, at, at the uh, basically the urban development, the urbanization of America and other first world countries. And I think to myself today, this would be impossible because the amount of regulatory framework one would have to go through, the amount of labor issues one would have to deal with, uh, basically uh, the sort of workforce one would have to uh, employ. You couldn't build these magnificent buildings and pave these roads and fill in this swampland that people did uh, you know, a few generations back. And so it does create the question because it's more people are still being born. Who's going to build the cities of tomorrow and what will they look like? Uh, it's, it's a question I think that could have a frightening answer, uh, but uh, it, I, that, it's definitely a question that's worth asking. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. It really is. Uh, so, yeah, JF, as we do begin to, uh, unfortunately, uh, wind things down tonight, it really has been a fascinating conversation. Do you think that there can be a revival, a renaissance of uh, of free enterprise among men since they're being, uh, you know, <laughs> stigmatized, obviously, by the woke left? We don't even have to get into that. But now and by the quote unquote pro-life right, do you think that men can perhaps find economic freedom in some way through making money for themselves? But it would be in a different uh, framework than, you know, getting the house with the mortgage and the picket fence in uh, the suburbs, something like that. And, you know, uh, the, uh, the the the, the 2.5 kids. Uh, did you, did you, how do you think, did you think it's possible for men to, to through capitalism and, and ingenuity, uh, build something better for themselves in this very undignified age? Absolutely. But I think that the, the circumstances historically where that happens, let me list a few. Uh, the colonization of America, you know, it creates a lot of space suddenly, a lot of space to be populated by a few people where the most brilliant could succeed, the most cunning or the most economically intelligent would succeed. So you need a space of expansion toward which eventually the leftists will be headed, but they're a little too stupid to, to go at it right now. So that's what you need for what you describe, a kind of renaissance. Uh, we've had it in the big tech, uh, in the, the basically the tech bubble. The, this creation of a virtual space, the internet, has led to basically anarchic beginnings for networks, uh, anarchic beginnings for the development of the internet, social media, web 2.0. This has left a lot of space for men who think wild, men who think creatively, and where these talents of creativity can outcompete others. Uh, but it was quickly neutralized by the left in terms of internet control and censorship. 
I think we may have a little renaissance left, if you want to be white-pilled about it, in the, the emergence, first the re-emergence of free networks like Twitter under the, the umbrella of Elon Musk, and crypto. Crypto allowing constantly this fleeing from society. And I think it's the next, uh, the next flight. It's the next rush to gold. Uh, it is the the rush to crypto. Now there will be lots of loss along the way because a lot of a lot of these cryptos will outcompete each other. So some some of them you will have if you only have your wealth in one crypto. It may be the winner, but it may be the loser. But at least it gives a way for the competitive economy to kind of run away from leftism in a place where it may not be seized or in a place where at least if if the regulations eventually come to seize these things we will develop alternative cryptos that will be truly unseizable so i think that the closest thing that will bring us to a renaissance like this is the development of a truly decentralized internet economy and an economy of creativity and crypto hopefully that happens it would be great to see uh, global marketplaces facilitated where people can, you know, exchange goods, that sort of thing, maybe just bartering them or could, you know, be done for consideration, cash, whatever. But uh, I do think that the Internet holds a lot of promise for people being able to make their own living. Also, working remotely, I think, is a very good thing, which has come up. Uh, it, it reduces the number one, the, the, the cost of driving to someplace every day. Uh, and it also saves time uh, and it makes it so it's harder to have toxic workplace politics forced on uh, different people. Of course, there could still be a PowerPoint you have to watch, whatever, but it's different than being in this environment where it's reinforced physically, uh, you know, because you're in this communal area where everybody is in an echo chamber. Uh, I think remote work uh, is a way for men to sort of have a foot in the traditional economy and a foot in the, uh, the new economy, the emerging economy. And I think that holds a lot of unsung promise. I expect it to continue during the years ahead because it's so much more cost effective for various companies. And it is definitely something that I think can be used uh, to, to positive effect. So uh, guys can uh, earn a living without uh, basically having to have a negative quality of life. Absolutely. I agree with this. Great. Well, uh, that, you know, Jeff, has been a fascinating conversation. I thank you very much for stopping by. It should go without saying that I hope to see you on the show again very soon. There's never any shortage of things to discuss. Absolutely. Great pleasure as always. Bye-bye. Take it easy, JF, and thank you very much for tuning in, everyone. I hope you enjoyed the chat as much as JF and I did. Stay safe, be well, and cheers.